0: Just grab your Bibles or your phone or your device or your laptop, whatever you got that you can get God's Word from, and uh, turn to Nehemiah chapter nine. If you're on a device, you can go to the ESV version. If this is your first time uh, with us this morning, I got a uh, birthday present from an old friend of mine. One year, this is like I don't know, twelve years, fifteen years ago. This guy gave me an axe for my birthday yeah, there's a reason why y'all are laughing right now. So if you're new here, there's a reason why they're all laughing right now, right? So I get this thing, and normally I'm the kind of guy that just likes to buy my wood, like a normal person, right, for my fireplace. And I thought, well, I got the axe now, so how about I do a little chopping? Um, I remember thinking at one point in my life, like being a lumberjack would have been a great vocation. Um, so I thought, well, maybe I can live that out a little bit right now, so I, I got out into the backyard, I had my wood, I had my axe, I had my scared wife in the uh, kitchen looking out on me. Man, I hate saying this, but you know, you guys need a pastor that's transparent. And uh, my first chop, thing think, bounced off the wood right into my shin, yeah, onto my leg. My scream is still echoing in the stars somewhere. Um, I mean, it was my birthday, right? This dude this dude wanted it to be Lumberjack Day, you know? Um, it just didn't really fit. It was not a, not a suitable gift for me from this guy. And in some ways you could say this sermon does not quite fit the mold of the day it is. But this is what we do here at Substance. We, we preach through books of the Bible. We typically don't take breaks when it comes to days like this. So we're just plowing through. We're in Nehemiah 9. It's Mother's Day. That's what we're doing. It's going to be fitting because all of God's word is fitting for every portion of our life. So this is what we're going to be going through today, which is a a passage and passages that's going to be talking about what it means to go before the Lord and acknowledge our sin, confess our sin before God. And then what is God's place in that? What's his position in that? In other words, What does God do with the even whens of our life, which is the title of the sermon? Even when we are doing this, even when we find ourselves in this particular place, even when the question is, where is God in our even whens? You know, as concerned as we all seem to be about our future, the question really is, what do we do with our past? As concerned as you are with your future, what do you do with it? What do you do with your past? Some of us have the tendency to just want to bury it. It's so painful. We just want to put a lid on it. We want to get a shovel. We want to just get it into the ground. We want to ignore the effect that maybe it has on us. Some of you guys might be the opposite. You can't can't seem to stop living in the past because it has had such a deeply shaping effect on you, right? Um, I I had a friend that just moved into a new house, and he'd been there about a week and I was on the phone with him and he made this comment. He said, we have all this stuff from another house that doesn't seem to have any place in our new house. Right. I don't know why. I don't know why it's so different. We move into a new house. We bring all the stuff over that we loved in the old house. And it's like there's nowhere for it to go now. Right. And that's a little bit like sometimes what our lives feel like when we are walking in the present and into the future with a past that is dogging us, right? What do we do with our past? What do we do with a past when it's filled with so much baggage, when it's filled with so many mistakes, and so, many, so much sinful behavior, so much running from God, whatever it is. So our passages today, they contain two really important words to remind us that God stays close to his people. I said it a minute ago, even when, even when, those are the two words, even when we distance ourselves from him. That's what we're going to look at today in Nehemiah 9. Uh, Going back to last week, we saw that Ezra, Ezra, who is the, the priest and the scribe here in Israel at this time when Israel uh, captives have come back from Persia into the land to try to repair the walls of Jerusalem, the gates of Jerusalem. God is bringing them back. They're still in captivity, but he's been bringing them back to their city to try to rebuild, to restore, to renew, to get their lives, to get their nation back into being a nation that is following after God. So last week we saw that Ezra, he began reading from God's word. It was the first time in years that a priest had stood up and read from God's word. We even read that the people built Ezra a pulpit. I'm still bitter about that, right? Um, Because again, Scott and me had to build this one. I didn't walk in here and see anybody with any wood. Right, anybody with any tools, putting this thing together so that I could stand behind it. I'm just throwing it out there. You know, this is not my last sermon. We can still get there someday, right? Because there might be a day we don't want this pulpit anymore, right? Um, man, I'm going way too far with this one, aren't I? Um, but that's what they did. They built Ezra a special pulpit. They wanted him to preach the word, to bring the word. And they listened to it, it said, with eagerness. And it caused them to, to kind of pull back and move into a spirit of mourning And the priest said, don't do that. This isn't the day for that. So they had a feast day that was filled with rejoicing. But that wasn't the only thing that needed to happen. That feasting and that rejoicing was just the first thing that needed to happen after hearing the word. Today we read that they began a solemn assembly, it says, that began with fasting. It began with wearing sackcloth. It began with putting earth on their head, which would have been the posture of confession before the Lord because they knew their past, they knew where they had come from, and they knew that it wasn't pretty. Pick up with me here, chapter 9, verse 1. We're just going to piece our way through this a little bit. It's a lot of verses this morning. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. So, so part of this confession that we're going to see as we dive into verse 4 here was that they were going to recount all of God's mercy. They were going to begin their prayer of confession by recounting God's mercy, by recounting God's grace, by remembering the ways in which he was so forbearant with them. They acknowledged that he had kept his promises, beginning with Abraham all the way through Moses even when they had acted rebelliously. Keep those two words in your mind as we're, as we're stepping through this, even when. Look what it says in verse four as we pick up on the stairs of the Levites to Jeshua, Benai, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Benai, Sher- uh, Sherebiah, Benai, and Chenaniah, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Benai, Hashbinah, Sherebiah, Hodiai, Shebaniah, and Pathahiah said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. Verse 7, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the, the Perizzite, the Jebusite and the Girgashite and you have kept your promise for you are righteous and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. Verse 11, and you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. And by a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day. And by a pillar of fire in the night, to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. Verse 15, and you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. You told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So what we're going to do from this point on, after we hear all of this acknowledgement of just the, the mighty hand of God, they're saying, you did all of this. You are the one that is responsible for our deliverance. You are the God that has shown Undeserved mercy, undeserved compassion, undeserved grace, and it's just, they just keep listing it off. This is what you did. Here's the story that we remember. This is the story that for way too long now we haven't been telling our kids, that we haven't been gathering around discussing and talking about and remembering. Lord, it was you that did all of these things. So what we want to do now is just unpack the rest of this confessional prayer. And, and this main point, all right, if you're following me, which is that God keeps his promises even when we have a past filled with just unspeakable rebellion against him, right? Let's pick up in verse 16. and I'm going to read to the end and then we're going to unpack it. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck, did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. 21, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their sweet feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into your hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies and before you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer and in the time of their suffering they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven and according to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies but after they had rest they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments. But sinned against your rules. Which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Verse 30, many years You bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, Who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardships seem little to you. That has come upon us. Upon our kings. Our princes. Our priests. Our prophets. Our fathers. And all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and have acted. And we have acted wickedly. Our kings. Our princes. Our priests. Our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments. And your warnings that you gave them even in their own kingdom, and omit your great goodness that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Verse 36, behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And finally, and its rich yield goes to the king's, whom you've set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. That was a lot of reading. Thanks for staying with me. Those are the most important words that we're going to hear and read for the day. I want to look at three things over the next few minutes to understand how God keeps his promises in the even whens of our lives. The first one is this. God keeps his promises even when we disobey his commands. And that's what happened. And that's what we saw as we pick up in verse 16. They're pointing out that despite of everything God had done to bring them out of captivity, out of the oppressive lives that they lived in Egypt, brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey, they still disobeyed his commands. What does it mean? What does it mean to disobey God's commands? Well, it, it basically means failing to do all that he has told us to do and not to do for our good and for his glory. And here's something for us to remember as we, as we even just for a second here start just contemplating and thinking about what it means to disobey God's commands. Something to remember is the definition of disobedience, it just hasn't changed, right? It's not a cultural word. What it meant back then For the Israelites, it means today for the church. For the Israelites, disobedient, it looked like something. And the way they describe it here is the way Moses described it when he was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. He described it like stiffening their necks and not being mindful of his wonders. That's an interesting way to describe disobedience. When's the last time you said to your kid, Stop being unmindful of God's wonders? Like when they're messing up and you're trying to like tell them something, right? It's probably not something you typically communicate to them. Maybe you should, right? Here's a new one for you. It's probably getting down a little more directly to exactly what's going on, right? Stop being mind, unmindful of God's wonders. What does that mean exactly? Well, it means that the Israelites refused to remember They refused to remember all that God had done for them in the past. They had seen all these miraculous wonders, like the the plagues that God had sent to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh. They saw the parting of the Red Sea when they crossed in safety as the Egyptian armies were chasing them. They were led with a cloud by day and fire by night so that they could find their way through the wilderness. God provided them water from rocks, from desert rocks, Miraculous water springing from desert rocks. Food falling down from the sky every morning so that they would never go hungry. They forgot and they complained often. They refused to be mindful of his wonders. It's helpful for us. It's convicting for us. It's helpful for us, right? Because disobedience, it's not just some passing trend, right? It's exactly what we struggle with today. We stubbornly refuse to remember that God has kept his promises in the past and then believe that he will remain faithful in the present. We just conveniently decide to not remember that. We stiffen our necks at the miracles that exist around us. Listen to that. At the miracles that exist around us. Some of you might say, right, but he has not parted the Red Sea for me yet. And I would say we should be careful that we don't miss some of the miraculous ways that God has delivered us, even when our life has been characterized by disobedience. Whose life has been characterized by disobedience here in the church? Well, I should not be the only guy raising his hand, but okay, (laughs) here we are, right? all of our lives are characteristic of disobedience. All of our lives. But God has delivered you even when those moments of disobedience have permeated your life. That is the miracle. That is the, miracle. the miracle is the amount of compassion and love and grace and mercy. He keeps showing you even when you lack even the faintest signs of faithfulness toward him. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. We just read that. Even when you disobey. This means that if you are a child of God this morning, your disobedience doesn't define you anymore. It's not the biggest thing in your life. It doesn't hold you in its power. But it needs to be acknowledged. It needs to be repented of so that you can enter back into a place of renewal with the Lord. What confession is, and one of the reasons why we do it every week as part of our liturgy, and Scott led us through us this morning, is that it's the continual washing and rewashing of our hearts. That's what confession is. It's just like your kids, right? And your kids need regular baths. You don't like that they do. You don't even like that you need a regular bath, but you need regular baths, right? It's like your dishes need regular washing, it's like your cars need regular cleaning. Your clothes need a washer and a dryer. And all that stuff I just described are all these outer things. We just do it so that we can face one another. So that we can actually stand like within six inches of each other and not feel shame and not smell stuff, right? I mean, look at the, look at the lengths we go to. Look at the lengths I go to just to make sure there's not stains on my clothes right now and there probably are, right? The lengths that we go to. And yet we're talking about something so much deeper, so much more significant. Right? So much more significant. That's why confession is so important. That's why we're seeing what the Israelites are taking part of here back in that day as this moment when they are being renewed and reestablished with God as their father. So God keeps his promises even when we disobey. Secondly, he keeps his promises even when we worship other gods. They laid that out, right? Even when they made a golden calf, God didn't forsake them in the wilderness, but he provided them a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. I mean, we just talk about like that, like it's no big deal. Oh, there's the cloud again, right? Hey, how's the fire? look? How's the, how's the fire floating in the air looking tonight? What do you think, right? And we just talk about this stuff like it's just, you know, like it's no big deal. But look at the lengths that he went, the supernatural lengths that he went to lead his people even when they were so rebellious. A cloud by day, a fire by night to guide them, to direct them on their journey. These people wanted for nothing. They never went hungry. They were miraculously provided for, and yet time and time again, they, they would look to other gods. That was something that was characteristic of the Israelites. They would look to other images that they could see. They wanted a god that they could see, something they could bow down before, something that provided them some shape and some form, so that they had something, what they would say was tangible to offer their praise and worship. God said, No, there can't be any images of me. That's not who I am. there's There's not an image that you are going to be able to fashion with your hands that is going to adequately characterize me. So, therefore, in the Ten Commandments, what's one of them? No graven images. Don't make images of me. But yet, they made images because they wanted something they could see. What's funny about idolatry, let's chat about this for a minute. Um, is that we don't think we're as primitive as the Israelites were with the golden calf. But here's the thing. There's just nothing new school, right? There's nothing new school about worshiping at another altar. There's just nothing really new about it, right? The altars change. The idols remain the same, right? The Israelites were probably not worshiping at the altar of sports. They were probably not worshiping at the altar of family or career but new school idolatry is just repackaged. It's just repackaged. It's like it's like when Taco Bell, I see Jared Akers smiling back there when I said that. It's like when Taco Bell offers a new menu item and you're like, this tastes a lot like that other taco burrito thing <laughs> that I've been eating for years. I think they just gave it a new name, right? (laughs) Not that I eat at Taco Bell at all or anything like that, right? But it's kind of like that. It's repackaged. Essentially, it's the same ingredients. Idolatry is so ingrained in our hearts and in our culture that we have to take inventory and not just inventory. We got to take intentional inventory to know what it is we're actually worshiping more than God, right? Because here's the thing, few people are going to call you out on your idols. I hope as a church that changes. I hope we develop, form, cultivate relationships in the church. We can sit down with our brothers and sisters and go, hey, I'm noticing something here. But the reality is that few people are ever going to call you out on your idols. They're likely, check this out, they're likely going to congratulate you on them. Or you're going to become defensive if somebody actually pokes them, right? Right? There's a woman named Sharon Miller who went on social media last week. She's, a, she's an author and a speaker. And she talked about, she just made this comment about her kids. She talked about how her kids weren't playing sports right now because it conflicted with them serving at the church. And this woman got destroyed. She got totally lit up, right? Um, she didn't say there was anything wrong with playing sports because there, there isn't unless sports become a thing you feel you can't not play right? But what this woman did was poke an idol on, of all things, Christian Twitter, Christian social media, and it was fierce. Man, the response was fierce. I mean, this woman's talking about soccer and it's fierce, right? So here's my question, because everybody just got real quiet on that one, right? What in your life would cause that kind of reaction? Because this is a good way to find out what the idols are in your life. In other words, what is there? This is is something that Tim Keller has said through the years. What is there in your life that if it was taken away would make your life feel like it had no meaning? That's a good way for us to, to look at our life, take inventory and try to determine what those idols might be in our life that are taking too much affection away from what needs to be reserved affection for God. And then when you discover what that is, what should come to mind, listen, is that God has been faithful to you even when you elevate things to God-like status. That, by the way, he shares no glory with. He does not share his glory. Isaiah 48, 8, I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. Again, it's probably something not quite as obvious as a golden calf. And in fact, it might be a good thing that has become a God-like thing. But God was faithful to the Israelites even when they worshiped a golden calf. So that tells you something more about God, more surprising about God, than it does about his people. Even when... They ignored all that he had done to save and to serve them in the desert. And that's you, and that's me. God is still keeping his promises to you even when you give God-like glory to things of lesser glory in your life. That's astounding. Three, God keeps his promises even when we ignore his warnings That was another thing that gets brought up in this prayer of confession: is that the people ignored God's warning. That's how patient God is when He says, "Hey, there's consequences. There's consequences for disobeying Me. There's consequences when you chase after other idols who aren't that aren't real, that can't help you and save you and serve you and deliver you and show you the love, grace, mercy, and compassion you need. There's consequences." I'm warning you through the people that I'm sending you that are speaking my words. And this is interesting because I'm not sure how often I've I've even heard this discussed. The good news of the gospel is this. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus who has delivered you from your sin. That's one way of being able to summarize the good news of Jesus. But there's a warning implied in that statement because if we don't turn from those things that separate us from God, we will suffer unwanted consequences. Consequences that none of us actually long for and desire and want. If you own a cat, like I do, these dudes... Are they're? Fe- I mean, they're, they're scaredy cats on one hand, but when it comes to like s- jumping on things and walking on like perilous ledges, they they're fear they're just fearless. They're weird like that. They'll walk on the edge of anything, but sometimes the most amazing thing happens, and they slip, and they fall spectacularly. And every time that happens, you're kind of like, oh, my gosh, I don't, you know, I'm like, I didn't see that, you know, I walk away, you know, I don't want to embarrass my cat, you know. Um, But they get, they get close to the edge and nine times out of ten, you know, they're all right. Then they have those moments where they slip and they fall. And yet, even when we ignore his warnings... We get close to those things that are not good for us and we fall. He bears with us, it said. It said, You bore with us. He bears with us. Think about that word. He bears with you. He waits with you. He stays with you. He gets closer to you. He bears with us. He delivers us from the consequences even of our sin. Sometimes the consequences of our sin could be so much worse. And we see the the mercy of God pulling us back even from as bad as things could be. And he lifts us up according to his mercy. The wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God His eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the pattern of a righteous God who bears with his unrighteous people. And he took it even one step further because he knew that you and he knew that me, we have no righteousness in us. So he sent a righteous advocate in Jesus Christ. That's how far. Those are the lengths God goes even when we break every promise we've ever made in our lives. The miracle is that the sins of your past, your present, and your future have been covered by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the miracle that you need to receive in order to be reconciled to God. Why? So that your guilt and your shame on this Mother's Day can be removed. Because he is a God who keeps his promises. He is also a God who keeps us when we don't keep ours. So it turns out this really is a good Mother's Day message for us. Because all of our even whens, what comes after that is what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God. Even when is followed by two Vitally important words in Ephesians 2. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when, there's those two words again, we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Paul says, by grace you have been saved You've been raised up with him, seated with him. It's like you're already up there in the heavenly places with Christ. That's what being resuscitated from your sin means is you are raised up to life to be with Christ and it's like you're already there so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There was no way to measure all of that for the Israelites. How do you measure that much grace? How do you measure that much mercy from the hand of God? You can't. And if you could measure it, then somehow we would get to a place where we might not need it anymore. But because it's immeasurable, that tells us something about God, and it tells us something about the level of which we will need that. Until the day that we are in glory with Him. So that's what we're gonna celebrate this morning as we take communion together. This is a symbolic moment for the church Christ's broken body, His shed blood. We consider the cross this morning on Mother's Day. We stand in gratefulness and in thankfulness and in obedience. Because Jesus said on the night before his death, do this so that you can remember my immeasurable grace and mercy. Do this so that in all the even winds of your life, you will remember that God sent me to be the sacrifice that was required so that you could have peace with a God who has wrath for us in our sin. That is beauty on Mother's Day. That is the beauty of spring. The spiritual spring that happens in our lives and in our hearts today on this Mother's Day. This is what we celebrate. If you are somebody that has come here and you are somebody that has not given your life over to the one that has given you his life, we'd ask you just to stay seated, reflect on these words, Don't come up and partake of something that we are eager for you to partake of with us when God has brought you into a relationship with his son Jesus through repentance and trust in his work on the cross. So I'm gonna pray and as I pray, the ushers are gonna come forward. We have two stations, two here and one in the back and then we'll all stand and we will all find maybe a couple of people who can take communion with us pray with us. So this is something that we all stand up. We, we do this. It's, uh, it's going to be full of energy, full of celebration. Let me pray. God, we thank you that even when, even when we were dead, you made us alive together with Christ. Help us celebrate that with joy today because you're the giver of life. You're the forgiver of sins. For those who have not come to you, and entered into that relationship with you that offers freedom from sin and from the past and from the weight and the yoke of those things that bear down on us. I pray that you would speak to their hearts, you would draw them to you, that we would be able to enjoy communion with them as brothers and sisters who have been redeemed like we have. Lord, would you do this work? that we thank you for and that we have no life apart from. And as we take of these elements, help us to be reminded of the way that they nourish our soul and that without Christ, we are lost. But thank you that because of Christ, we have been found. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.